Good morning, Church of the Valley. It's nice to see you guys. If you're on live stream, you're probably not in the middle of talking like we are, but uh, sorry to interrupt you all. You can talk after the service, I promise. Thank you for joining us at COV. We are a church that values Jesus Christ and His gospel of grace. We value that above all else, which means that messed up, sinful people like you and I and online have the opportunity to come into relationship with a holy and perfect God because Jesus sacrificed His life for ours. That's the truth of the gospel that we stand on today because in our passage we have Paul the Apostle, the man who met Jesus alive after Jesus had died and began to follow and proclaim Jesus for the rest of his life. We have Philemon, which this letter is addressed to, a church leader who leads a church in his own home. And this letter is addressed to Philemon from Paul about a mutual brother in the faith named Onesimus. Can you say Onesimus? That's not very good. Onesimus was a slave of Philemon's that had ran away and had become a Christian, a regenerate follower of Jesus. And as we have been slowly making our way through this very short letter, Paul is asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus's debt. So let's quickly read the passage that we read last week, and then we'll jump into verse 12 as we study today. Here's what it start, This is how it starts in verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold in order to you to do what you ought to do, Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Paul, a prisoner of Christ, as he put it, chose to appeal to Philemon's commitment to Christ rather than Paul's own authority to order Philemon to release his slave. But Paul understood that Philemon's commitment to Christ ought to supersede even Philemon's wealth and or luxuries. So today, we continue this ask of Philemon. Here's what it says in verse 12. Paul says, I am sending him, Onesimus, who is my very heart, back to you. Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, and the reality is that just because you become a Christian, just because you come to Christ, it doesn't mean that every worldly consequence is forgiven. Our salvation is spiritual, but the here and now has consequences that we all have to contend with also. Now, I don't want any of us to think, especially as we're going through a passage which a lot of people point to when it comes to slavery, I don't want anyone to think or believe that slavery is acceptable in the eyes of God or condoned by any repentant Christian, or God in His Word. But what we see here is a bondservant, also known as a slave, who probably and possibly sold himself into slavery to pay off a debt. Now, I don't say that to make it more palatable. I say it because it's culturally, culturally what is consistent with slavery in the context in which we're reading. But yet, we know of slavery we know that it has an awful and disgusting way of devaluing human life based on skin color or place of origin. It's vile. It's detestable. That, in my opinion, is not specifically what's happening here. It's easy to assume that the first century situation in Colossae, which is now modern-day Turkey, is the same as the 19th century Alabama, but it is not. Often a person would have a debt that he would work off, so he would then self-indenture himself, where he would hire himself out to be a servant for a person who would financially pay off his debt. The annoying part is that it's not clear if it's that either. 
But looking at the culture and the time period, I'm confident that it's more like what I just described about being self-indentured than an enslavement of a person because of their skin, culture, skin color or culture. But I could be wrong. But as we'll read, there's a few possible reasons to why I came up with this assumption as we go through this passage. So stay with me. Look at what Paul calls him. He says that Onesimus is his very heart. This statement is much stronger statement than I think we see at first glance. Paul is saying, I am sending you a piece of me. Paul was used by God to reach Onesimus with the gospel, the good news of grace. It was through Paul's missionary journey to Rome that Onesimus came to hear and trust the gospel of Jesus for his justification, which many believe is what also happened to Philemon, that through Paul's preaching ministry in Ephesus, Philemon became a follower of Jesus. So there is this special relationship that Paul has with both Philemon and Onesimus, not because Paul is the point, but because Paul was a tool in which God used to reach him. So with this in mind, this may be why Paul refers to Onesimus as his very heart, a piece of him, and puts on display this pastoral heart that Paul has for those that he has had direct contact with who have repented and followed Jesus. Now, I've had the honor of being a part of many people's faith stories, either from being the one who was preaching when someone came to faith or sharing Christ with them personally, generally out of Pete's Coffee, being involved in their baptism, or personally discipling and investing in them. And even though I think when I was younger and less mature, that meant that the connection was stronger than, say, someone that I haven't had these same situations with, I do have relationships with some who I got to be involved in their coming to Christ that through the Lord's grace will last throughout this life and into the next of our friendship. But church, whoever God used in your life to bring you to himself, it was not about that person or the person who baptized you or anything like that. God uses his people the ways that he deems necessary to draw people to himself. So if you've been used by God to see people come to Christ, yay God, you're a tool. Way to be a tool, Christian. Paul goes on, verse 13, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. Paul mentioned in the passage that we taught last week that Onesimus was very useful now. And I pointed out that this didn't mean his effort, but he was spiritually useful. In fact, Paul, in my opinion, is pretty punny. Is anyone punny? Does anyone like to be punny? No, you guys don't know what punny is. Okay, that's fine. Paul, in my opinion, is punny because Onesimus in Greek means useful. There you go. If you've been redeemed by Christ... If you have had the effectual call, then you no longer are enslaved to sin. You no longer have to be defined by what you do right or wrong. You no longer have to be defined by what you do right or wrong. And you are adopted as a son or daughter of God. So you are now defined by Christ. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You pray to a God who you know and knows you through Jesus Christ's sacrifice and victory over death. This is the beauty of the gospel is that you're in relationship with the God of the cosmos now. So you better believe that Paul saw a benefit and a usefulness in a fellow brother named Onesimus, which translates to useful. He knew that having not only another person to go share Christ with others with, but to pray with, to be encouraged by, was invaluable to the ministry of the gospel, especially while Paul was in chains. So, I'm about to share a, a, a big thing that I think we all know, okay? 
but it needs to be said. And I know not everyone loves sarcasm as much as I do. Does anyone love sarcasm in here? Except for, okay, a few of you, you my people. But I'm going to give you a response that was really big in my generation, okay? And I'm going to want you to say it out loud after I give you the statement that is very, very clear. You ready? Are you ready? We need one another for encouragement in the kingdom. Believers need one another for sanctification and encouragement. Here's the response I'm looking for. You ready? Big in my generation. You ready? Duh, pastor. Very good, guys. I know that you know that we need one another for encouragement and sanctification, but if we all know this, why do we attempt to run from this? Why? Is it because relationships are hard? Right, they are, but they're worth it. Is it because we're selfish? Yes, we are. Repent. Is it because we're afraid we'll be disappointed or hurt by others? You will. But what a great opportunity to exercise the gospel. And that is what this ask is all about. Paul is asking Philemon to forgive the debt that Onesimus has, even though he has the right to be punished for running away. Onesimus had the right to be punished for running away, but this wonderful and beautiful reflection of the gospel in action is what Paul is asking Philemon to do. So don't claim you've been forgiven by Christ if your heart becomes so hard that it's impossible for you to forgive others. I've seen people forgive individuals who murdered their family members. I've seen financial debts be erased with more money than most of us will ever possess in a lifetime. Not because the person felt like it, but because in both instances, the gospel was so real to them that it changed the way they thought. So real that it made them act the opposite of human nature. Because the Spirit of God doesn't lead us to act naturally, but supernaturally. The gospel makes us do unnatural things, especially in relationship, because the gospel, the good news of grace, is that big a deal. That's why when we share the gospel, we tend to get flustered. Our heart rate starts to increase. Maybe our face gets redder because sharing the message of the gospel is that big a deal. We understand that a person can go from death to life, not because we talked them into it, but because God decided to reach into their soul and change them and give them a new heart. They can have their eternity hijacked, not because we share it perfectly, but because God in our sharing can do miraculous things. So isn't it worth it to share with someone you love about the goodness of Jesus Christ? Romans 10, 14, Paul speaking to the church in Rome, and he says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? God could have made a planet. So how many planets do we have now? Eight? Pluto's not a planet anymore? Okay, so there's eight planets, supposedly. And God could have made a planet look like the words, stay with me, he could have made one of the planets look like the words, only in Jesus can you be saved, repent, and follow him. Could you imagine this? You look up, and in your dialect, that's what the planet looks like. Only in Jesus can you be saved, repent, and follow him. But he didn't do that. He could have made the waves, when they crash into the rocks on every beach shore, every time they did this, it could have made the sound, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that anyone who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But that's not what it sounds like, does it? It goes, right? 
He could radically save some really influential people, but for whatever reason, he chooses to save who he saves. And he has decided to use you and I to reach people with the message of the gospel through our frailties, through our insecurities. He has entrusted us the message of reconciliation, not because we nail it, but because God can use even you and I. So Paul would have liked to keep Onesimus with him. He was useful as a fellow faith worker. But as we will see in the next verse, Paul had a purpose in sending him back to Philemon. Here's what it says, verse 14. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you would do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Okay, I'm going to try not to go on too far a tangent and or field trip. But motivation matters in the kingdom of God. It matters so much that God points to the heart rather than just the action time and time again through His Word. He doesn't want us to be robots. He doesn't want us to be a conveyor belt of good works. He doesn't want us to be programmed with the right answer. Showing our work matters because living for Jesus is fluid, it's transparent, it's ever-changing, and it's challenging. So, real talk, I don't know that I have to say that. Generally, it's real talk. Do you ever look back at your walk with Christ and go, what was I doing there? Okay, Laura and I. Why was that thing that I was doing, why did I make it so much about me? How come, even though I was talking about Jesus, I somehow wanted people to give me praise? A lot of times, you and I, we don't admit the, the motivation behind something until much, much later, like until the statutes of limitations have gone away or something. And that's why I want to always point us to the fact that we can serve, we can give, we can do everything that looks really, really holy, and it can be detestable and disgusting to God. You guys know this passage. I've read it before. You've heard it before. You've studied it before. It's kind of the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the most popular sermon ever preached in all of history. Jesus is kind of landing the plane. Laura's playing the piano at the end of this message, and Jesus goes, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, real quick, this passage, I don't read this to scare any of you. I don't think you can be scared into the kingdom. This passage is to warn all of us, especially those of us who are Christians who lead others and serve Christ that why we do what we do really matters. Warnings in Scriptures, let me just give you an Easter egg, warning in Scriptures for a believer is to keep us on the right path. That's why they're there. And if we are not assessing our hearts or taking stock of our motivations, we'll begin to think very subtly that God owes us because of all the things that we do for Him. This is what the Lord calls out in Amos 5 when he speaks about our gatherings. And I got to be honest, when I first read this passage, because I didn't want to just read the last verse, I wanted to read more of the context, but this passage actually made me laugh a little bit. I mean, it's not funny, but it made me laugh. Here's what it says, Amos 5, starting in verse 18, "'Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord.'" He's speaking to those who don't really trust Christ. "'Why do you long for the day of the Lord? 
That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate and despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Wow! This doesn't mean that all gatherings are a stench to the Lord. But if our motivations are ungodly, if they do not want to exalt God's only Son, if you look Christian but you are not actually a follower of Jesus, then your doing anything is useless because God wants your heart first. Because our behavior comes out of our belief that Jesus is the Christ. He's our Christ. He's our master. He's the one we serve, follow, and proclaim. So our motivation matters. So as Paul speaks to this, as he points out that he is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, his motivation is one to watch God show off in Philemon's life by Philemon having the opportunity to respond differently than what we would do or would be expected. To receive Onesimus back as a brother in the faith without a debt to be owed. Paul is seeking forgiveness for Onesimus, not because he deserved it, but because God's grace works to change our priorities and worldview. You show me a forgiving person, it's because they understand the grace that God gave them. You show me a humble person, it's because they understand the grace that God gave them. You show me a generous person, it's because they understand the grace that God gave them. Forgiven people do forgive people, but really it's the grace of God given to us and received that makes us act in contrast to the culture around us. Grace works. Grace changes people. Grace gives people the object lesson to live, not for themselves, but for the glory of God. It is literally by the grace of God that we love God in the first place, because He first loved us while we were still sinners, but God demonstrates, Romans 5, 8, His love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Back to Philemon, verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Paul goes kind of optimistic and philosophical and theological when it comes to this approach to addressing Onesimus' running away from Philemon. He's optimistic and philosophical and theological that even though Onesimus running away was not necessarily what the law at the time condoned, God absolutely used it for His glory by rescuing Onesimus through the ministry of Paul's preaching the gospel. It was philosophical and optimistic in the way that the assumption of things happening as they did could have had a greater good in the future. And it was theological because Paul knew that Onesimus was not who he once was. When we come to Christ, when Onesimus came to Christ, he is a new creation in Christ, not enslaved to sin, but an adopted son of God's from now on. Again, I don't want to take a too far a field trip, but do you ever have moments where you look back at a situation or difficulty that felt wrong, or maybe even like injustice at one point, and God used it so many ways to change you, that you can actually now, as you look back at it, give praise for the circumstance that you had to suffer through because of the difference that God had made since? We're far too often instant gratification junkies and not understanding of the long game that God plays in our lives. 
So I want you, real quick, this is just an exercise, I want you to participate. I want you to think back to something difficult that you went through prior to COVID, okay? Does anyone remember life before COVID? Anyone? It's pretty good, right? Something that you had to go, for, go through before you knew what social distancing meant. Something that you had to deal with before an N95 mask was a thing you had ever heard of. Think about that difficulty. Think about that trial. Think about that circumstance. Think about what you had to experience. You guys got it? Come up with something? Now, I want you to think optimistically. Did that circumstance shape you at all? Did it help you grow? Was it something that changed your mind about other things that possibly would not have happened without that circumstance that seemed far too hard at the time? What I'm not saying is that every situation is easy or ideal, but what I'm saying is that God can and does use hurt. He uses pain, trials, suffering, difficulties. Why? To sanctify us. And He uses them for His glory. Okay, so back, we're going to read 15 and then 16, and it'll make some sense. Perhaps the, re- perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Verse 16, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is a very dear brother to me, but even dearer to you, Paul says, but as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. No longer as a slave, a beloved brother is how another translation calls it. Christianity does not attack slavery openly but it did destroy it through its view of dignity and the worth of human beings. Let me show you a situation. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul speaks to this about our salvation. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So your worth and your identity were not wrapped up in your circumstance or your effort but fully in Jesus Christ and His identity that He gifts to you through Him. Paul's request is one that is of great cost to Philemon. He is asking him to free someone who is probably indebted to him. And I get this from the passage that we're studying next week also, but Paul is doing what far too many of us don't. He is asking a big ask to help one person, even though it may inconvenience inconvenience or cost someone else something great. We're big on bringing passages back to the gospel, church. And the thing I don't know that I fully grasp is how costly my salvation is to God. My being made righteous, my right standing before a holy and perfect God, even though I am an unrighteous sinner who is like a dog who returns to its own vomit and commits sin after sin, both knowingly and unknowingly, because my nature is sinful, my selfishness is predominant. And God knows that about me. God knows that about you. And he didn't say, meh, let's let him off the hook. He sacrificed what was dearest to him, his own son. God took on flesh and took the punishment that we deserve. God paid for our penalty with his own blood. God got what we deserved, and we inherit what Jesus deserves so that we no longer would be defined, identified, and enslaved to our sin. We've said it many times, but Jesus' death on the cross paid our debt, and His resurrection from the dead is our receipt. 
And there's a reason we celebrate and we clap and emphasize and praise Him for the resurrection, not just on Easter, but any time that we gather because His resurrection changes everything. Going through suffering, we can be reminded that Christ is risen. We can go through conflict with friends because Christ is risen. We can be beaten down by this world, but that doesn't change the fact that Christ is risen. Our proclamation that Jesus is alive is more important than our moral record or our earthly accolades. Nothing is a bigger deal than the fact that our God is alive and He defeated death. So Paul says, no longer a slave, but better than a slave, a brother. What's better than being a part of the family of God? I'll wait. Let me know. Our adoption makes us sons and daughters of God, but it also creates a connection with other believers that is a closeness like siblings. Paul doesn't want Philemon to miss the family connection with Onesimus because it probably will be difficult for Philemon. If he sees Onesimus, it might be difficult for him to remember that Onesimus is now in the kingdom of God, and in the kingdom of God, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. It's the same Lord, it's the same message, it's the same gospel, it's the same God, and the same adoption has taken place both for Philemon and for Onesimus. So Paul continues with, he is a very dear brother to me, or he's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. How's he even dearer to Philemon than Paul? At first, I had no idea, but I'll give you some possibilities. Because Paul calls Onesimus his very heart. Does anyone see this in other translations? He calls him his very bowels. I'm not touching that one. But he was very, very dear to Paul. So one way of seeing this is that Philemon already had relationship with Onesimus, even if it was a master-slave type of situation. And Paul gives instructions both to slaves or bondservants and to owners and masters or authorities as they are followers of Christ. Ephesians 6, we studied this a few years ago. Verses 5 through 8, Slaves, obey your earthly master with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Paul doesn't directly abolish slavery in this passage. He points out that in whatever circumstance one person is in, as a follower of Christ, there is an example to be held. But then he calls out the ones who have the authority as well, because they too, if redeemed by Christ, have a new master that they serve. And so they also have an expectation of how they treat those that they may have some type of authority over. Verse 9, and masters treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So, Paul is probably addressing that their history and relationship, which was much different now that they both have met and followed Jesus, comes with a new type of relationship, which Paul is now pointing out maybe an even dearer relationship than Paul himself has with Onesimus. So, Paul has this big ask. And again, next week we'll know more about what it is, but spoiler, because you guys probably have read ahead, because it takes like 38 seconds. 
Paul isn't just asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus for running away or stealing something from him, which is generally what commentators tend to argue between those two ideas. Paul is asking Philemon to release Onesimus from what he owes Philemon. If that is money or service or whatever it is, Paul in good faith, because of his understanding of both Philemon and Onesimus' faith, is an ask that Paul, an apostle, feels that he can ask of Philemon because Paul knows what Philemon has been freed from, which is a sin. So, next week, we're going to cover the end of this ask and Paul's willingness to take on whatever was owed. But I don't want us to miss what a big deal our salvation is in 2021. We're not all followers in this room. We don't all follow Jesus in this room. And I want you to look around and be like, well, he's talking about how, I don't know. I don't know your hearts. I know my heart. Not all of our testimonies are full of God's grace. Some of us, for some reason, even if we have heard the gospel over and over and over, still think that our relationship with God, our forgiveness of our sins, our freedom from enslavement of our sin is only secured by what we do. So we try harder. We attempt to earn what is freely given, and yet our pride stops us from ever receiving grace because we don't like grace, because it means we can't do it ourselves. So, friend, I'm here to tell you that the greatest act of kindness in all of human history was when Jesus hung on a cross with love and obedience in mind to the Father. He stood in the gap for you and for I so that we would have access to God through Jesus, not through our abilities or anything that we could point to that was self-exalting, but fully and completely a work of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus got what we deserved, and we were offered and received what He deserves. So, how does this play out? Why is this so important? Because when we really grasp the good news of the gospel, when we really understand that Jesus died for our sins, we stop attempting to earn out of pride, and we begin to serve Him out of love. And this is a motivation changer when we grasp the gospel. That's why we're beginning to point out all the ways that you as COVers, I guess, can serve God through and in this community. Not because you have to, but if the gospel is true, why wouldn't we want to serve God? This morning, we're going to conclude with some time of musical worship and an opportunity to process with one another in community what God is doing. And I know if you've been here before and we've been like, all right, we want you to talk to somebody. I know not all of you are extroverts. I'm aware. And the goal is not to make you an extrovert. We're obnoxious. But relationships connection, community, that's God's business. And if you are extroverted, introverted, or something in between as a follower of Jesus, you are equipped with the Holy Spirit. You yearn for connection with other believers, even if it's on your terms. And so, we want to give us the opportunity to do this in person as we gather each Sunday to celebrate what God is doing throughout the week. So, I'm going to conclude with this. I love running. That sounds like an oxymoron. I love running. I don't want to use running as an analogy for the Christian life every week, but the parallels are uncanny. And I run on my own normally, and I enjoy it. I listen to a podcast, I listen to music, I listen to sermons, or I listen to nothing, but I enjoy the time either by myself or just with the Lord, if to be honest. 
I often pray, I often think about things. The thing that is most difficult about running, though, is pain. It hurts. It takes a lot of effort to run multiple miles, and some people who do it a lot more who are in shape have less pain, but those who don't do it as often or are just starting, it hurts to get going. Injuries abound for a bunch of reasons. These injuries can stop us from hitting our goals. There are excuses, there are roadblocks, but there are also triumphs and goal-reaching moments that feel really good. But ultimately, when I set out for a run somewhere with a distance in mind, I'm dreaming about how good the Gatorade will taste as I sit on my doorstep and look at the stats about my run on my Strava app when I'm done. The Christian life is not about Gatorade or the shape that we will feel if we're spending a whole bunch of time studying the Bible or have an amazing time of prayer or a worship experience. The finish line of the Christian life is not about a place or any pleasures. It's about a person, and his name is Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when I'm running and I'm discouraged or tired or feeling injured, all I want to do is give up on the run. And I know me, water or a snack or a good podcast, they help keep me going, but no matter what, it's going to require some pain. My legs are going to fill up with lactic acid, and they burn especially around mile eight. That was this week's 10-mile run. And I'm training for a marathon. I'd personally like to accomplish one every year from now until the Lord takes me home, and there are times 16 miles in where I'm like, Lord, take me now. And so I'm in the higher mileage portion of my training this year. And I'm putting in extra mileage each day for the most part. I usually take a day off in between. But when I go for my 26.2 mile run sometime this year, my hope is because I've put in the miles before, it won't feel like torture. But these runs are hard. They require endurance to push through the pain. And Christians, if you're a new believer or a sanctified saint, you're going to experience pain in this Christian life. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus is worth it. He is worth the pain. He is worth the trials. He is, he is at the end of the finish line, and he will make your decades of training worth the effort. But we must keep our eyes on the prize, which is not a place. It's not a pleasure. It's a person. And for today, I want to run with endurance, knowing that my God is with me, running alongside me, loving me in spite of my weak effort, and He cares for me even when I'm complaining. He shows me grace even when my heart is hardening to truth. My God, and hopefully your God, is alive, and He is risen, and He calls us to be His sons and daughters. We are no longer slaves. How can we not praise Him for this? We are his sons and daughters. We are his family. And I just want us as a church community to be encouraged by the fact that he will not leave us or forsake us. When we are faithless, he is faithful. When we are giving up, he is still lifted up. And I hope you and I are with him no matter what. Amen? Amen. Worship team, would you come and join me up here, please? And I'm going to pray for us. And my hope is, as we've gone through this very short letter and we've got two more sermons before we're done with all 25 verses, I think Romans will actually take a hundred years if we ever go through it. But as, as we go through Philemon, my hope is that you would see Paul doing a big ask, 
but also understanding that this big ask is because he understands his big God. And he understands that his big God changes us and makes us in community be sanctified and grow to look more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity that I had to say a bunch of words. But God, the things I say, the inflection in my voice, the things that I do, at best it can inspire someone towards the parking lot, and that's it. Only you can change a heart, God. So I ask as your word was proclaimed that, God, the things that were said that were directly from your word that are of you, that are truth, that they would land on hearts that are ready to receive it and put it into practice and not ignore it lest our hearts become hard, but that you challenge us to obey. You challenge us to love you. You challenge us to love one another and to seek you with all of our hearts, to run through the pain even when it hurts, to have friends that we can go to and talk with to pray with and can encourage us. Father, thank you that you are the point. And thank you that because of what Jesus has accomplished in our behalf, we're no longer slaves. We're sons and daughters of the God Most High. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.